Now this morning I want to uh, focus on uh, the fact that God is large and in charge. Now, uh, for many this is kind of given, or yeah, sure, you know God's out there somewhere, and it's great when you hear a testimony of God doing something personal, but you know, it's still out there. What about me? How can God uh, do something in my life where God is really large and in charge? Can God... Uh, get you out of your stuck position or how does God direct you or how does God get involved in your life in a way which is like incredible and you say wow God you are just so large and in charge in my life so uh, realizing that and as we preaching through the book of Exodus which uh, didn't happen last week or last year, or 2,000 years ago, you know, maybe like 2,000 years before Jesus. And so, you know, when you read the book, it's like, okay, how does this apply to my life? It's like way back then. Uh, and yet, I want to say this. The book of Exodus plays a disproportionately important part in the Bible. I mean, there's certain areas of scripture which just like come up again and again like in in genesis you know the first uh, section of creation and the fall of man and then in in genesis chapter 12 abraham and the covenant that god made makes with him and then exodus we've got all these huge stories and today i want to talk about the 10 plagues and it's like you know these stories are both uh, incredible stories but they incredible because they've sort of gone through the times of change and of different uh, customs and of different nationalities, and it's still relevant. It's still powerful. It's still like, okay, I can get something out of this. God is speaking to me when I'm going through this area. Uh, it's pretty easy for uh, people to uh, dismiss God and it's pretty easy for preachers to try and prove God or try and prove that you know, some of these events happened, such as the plagues. So for many, they would say, well, you know, uh, I don't know if the plagues really existed or if it was just maybe you know, mythology or just uh, symbolic. And then other people say, no, I think the plagues existed, but it wasn't really so much God doing supernatural things. It was really just like, you know, nature. Like, I mean, they have a big storm in, in Ethiopia and the sand in Ethiopia is red and so it washes into the Nile and then it comes down and it kind of looks like blood and then, you know, the frogs in the river, they don't like all the sediment in there so they kind of mooch out and uh, they can't get back in because it's too acidic or too much sand and so they die and then the gnats eat them and the flies get on top of the frogs and and you know eventually the cows eat the frogs and they start getting sick and they die and and then you know people are like filled with boils because everything's bad in the environment and and then of course you know you have some locusts and and they pretty popular in that area and and then when they get big swarms and it gets really really dark and and you can't see so that's the darkness and blah 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 and, and you know Maybe. But, you know, so what? God could orchestrate that in a natural way. But I don't believe that at all. I mean, I believe that God did it the way God said he did it. He, like, supernaturally 
like did some incredible things. Now, however you try and figure out the different plagues, the one that can't kind of be explained by any of these sort of uh, people that just don't want to accept that God can do miracles is the last plague where the firstborn of every family died. Uh, there's just like no sort of explanation of why the firstborn would die and, and not the other. Or, you know, the other big story in Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, and then you, you read some that disbelieve, and it's like, well, you know, they parted in a very shallow area of a pan. And the wind came up and it blew, and it kind of just separated the water and was dry enough to walk through. And, you know, I, no, I, I, I have no problem believing that God is who God is and does these incredible things, and God is in control of nature, and God is supernatural. I mean, I just actually don't have enough faith to believe some of those other things. I mean, they just, like, you really have to be stretching your... You, I have, it's, it, for me, it's far less problematic to see what God has done and believe what God has done because somehow or other, God backs up His act in our lives personally. And when we see God doing things in our church, in our individual lives, we say, wait, this is the same God. The God that can do absolutely anything. So <clears throat> I am, I'm far more interested, uh, rather than trying to prove uh, things, uh, although, I mean, I'm not an archaeologist, but it is kind of interesting that there are inscriptions on one of the pyramids in Egypt referring to the ten plagues. And it is kind of interesting that on some of the ancient coffins which they've you know, uncovered in some of their buried digs, rip, you have uh, you know, symbols and explaining the ten plagues. So I think there's plenty of evidence uh, that it took place, and it was what the Bible is saying it, it is. But from a theological standpoint, that interests me a whole lot more. How do we get to know God? How does God reveal himself through these things? Uh, what is God up to in these plagues? Uh, why is this interesting? Uh, why did they do the plagues the way they did them? And uh, yeah, I think this is just uh, really interesting because God is dealing with some of the issues that people put their faith in or where their belief was. And today we put our faith in things like money and power and, and like we get consumed uh, or you know, we get super focused on our sporting activity. Um, I won't admit to that, but, you know, it's just whatever. It's just like, but God is saying, am I first? Will you put me first and can I be first in, in any situation? Where are you going to for your inspiration? So in Egypt, it was pretty well known. They had like a, you know, a bazillion different gods. But uh, the, the, the plagues were directly addressing certain gods. Uh, so they had this... I'm not a, uh, an Egyptian mythology type person, but uh, the great Ennead was a group of nine deities. So the top of this deity was the sun god, and his name was Atom. Then he had two children, Shu and Tefnut, and they had children called Geb and Nut, and they had children called Osiris, Isis, Seth, and Nephthys. Okay, super interesting. I'm sure you took notes of that. But uh, let me explain why that is significant. Let me pray uh, before we jump in. Jesus, I just pray that you'd empower my preaching this morning. I pray that you would speak to your people. Lord, I pray that you'd bring them hope, 
that nobody is stuck, that you can overcome any obstacle in our lives, that you give us a future and a hope. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, uh, let me uh, circle back to that in a second, looking at those gods and how we overcame, how the story overcame these gods. I want to read a particular section of Scripture, two verses, on why did God do it this way? Why did he do plagues? And how does this relate to my interest in the theology of it? And it's very interesting, because we've got an explanation of why he did the, the plagues, and the impact on the plagues and on developing faith. Uh, look at this in Exodus uh, chapter 7, verse 4 and 5. Even then, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you. God talking to Moses. Telling Moses in advance, Pharaoh is not going to listen to you. So I, God, will bring down my fist on Egypt. Then I will rescue my forces, that is, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with great acts of judgment. When I raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Okay, this little section just intrigues me a lot because it, 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 there's a lot of things happening there. God is saying, listen, I'm going to initiate and I'm going to rescue my people. Now, for somebody sitting in this audience today, God is saying to you, he's going to rescue you. You can't rescue yourself. You can't figure out the way. You don't know how to get out of your situation. But God is going to look for you and rescue you. This is what God is saying. At the same time, God is saying, listen, when he's doing this, the plagues, he is going to be responding in judgment. Now, somehow or other, we always like get up like squirmish when we see God acting in judgment. And yet, when you've been on the downside of being abused or misused or whatever, you want judgment. And then it feels like good. But when you see God acting in judgment, sometimes it doesn't feel like you wouldn't do it that way. But then again, you're not God. But God is saying, okay, I'm going to act in judgment because... The Egyptians and the pharaohs have treated the Jewish people really badly, cruelly, and unfairly, and unjustly. But the final state, the sentence here is, I will raise my powerful hand and bring out the Israelites. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. This is just very, 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 very interesting to me because it's so relevant for where we are today. Just think about this for a second. There is no doubt that the Egyptians knew that God was God when he finished dealing with them and finished dealing with their gods and executed judgment. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't a question of proving that God existed. The Israelites responded positively and the Egyptians didn't. Pharaoh did not say, I'm going to worship God. The Egyptian people did not say, oh, I think your God is superior and mighty and awesome, and therefore I'm going to follow him and worship him. No, what they did do is say, your God is the God. No action. 
Listen to what happens in our society today. I mean, we get confronted with it. God is God, and then we say, will you follow him? No, it's just okay. Just like keep proving God or give me another example. But I'm not actually going to do anything. But the Exodus 14.31 says it this way. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. They put their faith in the Lord and in their servant Moses. There's a response. When you encounter the power or the presence of God, God is asking you for a response. And the response is, put your faith in him. Follow him, trust him, and allow God to be God. And the tension that we have, the judgment that falls upon each one of us, is that we again and again say, God, my way is better. I know more. I'll take it from here. I know you got me out of you know, slavery or a stuck situation, but now I'm, I'm doing okay. Take a back seat and I'm going to go forward. And God is saying, no, uh, if you will follow me, if you will worship me, uh, your life will go really, really well because my presence will be with you. And God is saying, I want to bless you and I want you to have a rich and fulfilled life. Now, do it in the order and the way that I'm asking you to do it. Back to the story. So we've got all these different uh, plagues. Uh, the water of the first uh, plague, the, the, the Nile River, turns to blood. And here we're dealing with uh, the god Osisiris. I can't pronounce the name correctly because he was the god that they worshipped uh, that was the Nile River. And they saw the Nile as his bloodstream. So God is saying, okay, you think you've got this great, powerful God. The Nile River, you've turned into a, 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 you know, a God. I'm going to deal with your God, and I'm going to show you that your God is inadequate and not really sufficient. And then you've got frogs. And of course, this is very interesting because they had a God, which was a frog God, which also represented fertility. And so God is saying, wait, I am superior to the God of uh, your frog god, and I am God. Then you got the god of lice and flies, and, uh, you know, God has a plan for each one of these gods, and he says, look, there's a god that they had, Petar, Hathor, Egyptian gods with bulls and cows. Uh, you know, there was just a god for everything, and uh, what God is dealing with here, though, is the main gods, the big gods that they put their faith in. And so as we go through the Exodus story, you just see that each one of these plagues is dealing with some significant god. And then the, in that pantheon of gods, the main god, the grand-grand-grandfather of gods that I read earlier was the sun god. And so the last plague is the plague of darkness, and you're dealing with the sun god. And God is basically saying, listen, I have total control of the sun and the sun gods, and your God is lesser than who I am. And what's like ridiculously interesting with that particular plague is God does the creation event. You know, remember the first act of creation is God is separating darkness and light. And again, in these plagues, he says, okay, God is supernaturally makes it so dark where the Egyptians are that the Bible says you could feel the darkness. I mean, it's total black. It, it, it's oppressive. And yet, just over here in Goshen, where the 
Israelites are, oh, it's light. So you've got darkness and light next to each other. And God is saying, yeah, I, I have total control of like everything. God is total, God is large and in charge and he's over any other God. God is saying in, the, in this uh, part of Exodus, there is no God superior to who I am. I am the greatest God. I am the only God. I am the most superior God. And that's exactly what everybody recoils with today because they say, well, what about other religions? And God is saying, no, no, you don't get it. I am large and in charge of the whole universe. Uh, not just the earth, but certainly the earth. Every nation on the earth. Every people group on the earth. Every providence, province. Every state. Uh, you. And me. God is saying, I am large and in charge and I'm above and, and more powerful than any other place, any other God. Any. That's what God is saying. And God is saying in these plagues that he is large and in charge over creation. In the first, uh, when the Nile is turned to blood, it's a replay or a re-look at God's powerful acts in Genesis. Genesis 1.10, God says, uh, call, God called the dry ground land and the waters seas. And God saw that it was good. And now what God is doing, he's saying, okay, I'm going to deal with the same waters, ponds, Nile River, and I'm going to control it and turn it into something that's unsustainable, not good, not livable, unpleasant. And likewise, with the plague of frogs and lice and flies, you could say frogs associated with water, lice with the earth, and flies with the air. And uh, we look back in Genesis, and it says, Let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that scurries and swarms in the water and every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind, and God saw it was good. And so again, now we've got, you know, the, the created order like just out of order. And it's just not pleasant. It's, it's wrong. Uh, it's frustrating. Uh, it's irritating. It's demeaning. And the, the power of, of Pharaoh is saying, listen, I don't have the superior power that I thought I, would, I could have. But at the same time, he's saying, I like my power, I like my wealth, and my power and my wealth has come through my slaves, the Israelites, and I'm not going to let them go, because if I do, we're doomed. And God's saying, you will let them go. And hard, Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. And God says, no, it's going to get so bad that not only will you want them to go, you're going to command them to go. You're going to force them out, and you're going to like, give them all your gold and riches as they leave as well. And it's like, that's not going to happen. I mean, his God is power and control in the strongest and mightiest land. Uh, you know, and that's exactly what God does. So he just keeps you know, screwing the pressure down. It just gets worse and worse and worse and Every time it's like, ah, oh, I think I can let go. No, he can't. And God says, okay, there's, there, there, is, there will come a point, if it's not your cattle dying and your vegetation being wiped out and your darkness being dealt with, and I mean, like 
give you boils so you really look ugly and you're scratchy and you're itchy, you, which is kind of an interesting plague if you think of it. You know, here you got the, 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 the Egyptians uh, who think they're super like pretty and beautiful and you know, they paint themselves and they are very proper and they've got all these servants, they're slaves, did all the dirty work. And yeah, the slaves are like, no boils, they're just doing just fine, thank you. And all the Egyptians are like sort of ugly and uncomfortable and scratching and it's like such a reversal. You know, it's just like, okay, you think you're so elegant and smart and sophisticated. No, God can just give you a few boils, change that. God is large and in charge when it comes to gods. He is the only God, the most powerful God, the most awesome God, the most personal God. God is uh, large in and in charge of creation. He can control rivers and gnats and flies and boils. and uh, He can do all these things. But God is also large and in charge of time. Both the past and the present and the future. And one of the things which sort of really captivates us when we look at this exodus and these plagues is God says, wait a bit. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we're going to experience seven plagues again. And this is going to happen before the end of time. And it's like, oh, so this may have happened long, long, long ago. But it's also going to be happening in the future. So it kind of tweaks our interest. It's like, huh. God, you really do have control over uh, creation, over the situation. But the tenth plague is the defining plague. This is the plague where Pharaoh says, okay, I can't take it anymore. My heart has changed. You guys have got to go. But it's also the plague that impacts us today. It's also the situation which... Jesus picks up on. Uh, you know, one of the first commandments in the Bible, well, not one of the first commandment in the Bible that God says you need to keep doing forever is Passover. Think about this. Passover has been going on for like four, you know, 2,000 years before Christ, and then Jewish people are still doing Passover today, so like 4,000 years. Probably haven't skipped a year. This tradition is still super well-practiced today. What other tradition and practice has sustained this amount of time? Different countries, different cultures, different languages, different places. This command that God said will keep going has kept going. Well, let me get, not get ahead of myself. Let me explain what God said and why this plague was so incredible and what the Jesus connection is and why this is so relevant for our lives today. God says to Moses, go back to Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh said to him, listen, if I see your face again, I'm going to kill you. Uh, just go back and tell him that this is like, this is it. This is what's going to happen. Uh, at midnight, the firstborn son, male, of every single family, Pharaoh, yours, and the poorest Egyptian, their son is going to die. And the firstborn of your livestock is going to die. 
And then he says through Moses, okay, now, Israelites, this is what you have to do. You have to go and get a lamb. You have to slaughter it. You have to take the blood, put it in a basin, get a hyssop branch, paint the blood on your door frames, on your posts, and then get inside your house and do not leave, do not cross through those door frames because at midnight, the first sons are going to die, but you won't. This angel of death is going to pass over the land and when he sees blood on your doorpost, he will just pass over your doorpost and you will not die. And so it's exactly what happens. And so there is screaming and wailing and sadness amongst the Egyptians. Meantime, the Israelites are like, hey, things are great, super peaceful, slept, had a great night's sleep. It's like, oh, nice morning. And I mean, just complete contrast. One's in trauma. And then God says, now listen, when you have this uh, Passover, I want you to roast that lamb. And you've got to eat the whole thing. I mean, like beginning to end. And you're going to roast over fire, and you've got to have unleavened bread, and you've got to have your sandals on, and you've got to have your walking stick in your hand, because things are going to happen fast. And indeed, they happen fast. Because once Pharaoh realizes that everybody's dead, including his son, he's like, get those Israelites out of here! Move! Go! Get out! <laughs> Finally, it, it happens. Okay, and so they go. Well, the funny thing is, as Christians, we still continue that same tradition of Passover to this day. It's called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was the day that Jesus said, I am going to be the sacrificial lamb. I'm going to be the lamb that's going to be slaughtered, and I'm going to walk voluntarily into Jerusalem to take on the judgment of God that's due to you and to me because we have not lived perfect lives. You may have lived good lives, but God is asking us to live perfect lives. And Jesus is saying, once the barrier is removed of our sin, of our imperfection, we can experience the love of God in a face-to-face -face personal way, which is what Jesus knows and what is what he wants for us. And so as we know, Jesus dies on the cross as the unblemished, perfect, male, sacrificial lamb. But he takes on the judgment personally and makes a way for us to connect with God personally. And so this command of Scripture that the Passover should continue as a perpetual thing for all time is indeed exactly uh, what has happened and what is happening. Let me uh, conclude with this thing, with this point. God is saying to each one of us that He knows us and that He will rescue us. He knows our situation. He knows our troubles. He knows where our desires are, and He knows what phase of life we're in. He knows what challenges are ahead for us today. 
And as we have this wonderful uh, little slogan here in Hopkinton, it all starts here. And if you've got your bulletin, I've got to fill in the blank. It's one huge uh, section to fill in. It's like one word. It all starts here. But from a spiritual standpoint, it all starts here. And the here is this. If we can worship God, if we can worship Jesus, we can experience living from Jesus so we can live for Jesus. God wants to give us life. He wants to encourage us. He wants to empower us. He wants to give us His Holy Spirit. But the paradoxical thing is He wants us to worship Him. And as we worship Him, which is never the thing that we instinctively want to do, God wants to bless us. And that was the issue that Pharaoh had right from the beginning. Moses would go and say, hey, we need to take a few days off and we need to go worship our God. Pharaoh's like, no ways. And today, God is saying, hey, you've got freedom. You can make a choice. Uh, come to church like once a week and worship God. We say, no ways. We want to work seven days a week, just like they did in, in Egypt. It's, it's way better. If we work seven days a week, I'll get ahead. I'll make a career. It'll just be awesome. And God is saying, no, take a break. Rest. Come worship me. Your stress level will go down and your bank account will go up. I mean, it's just so easy. And we say, no, 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 God, I got it, I got it, I got it under control. God said, have faith. It's not that complicated. And so the challenge, I think, for all of us is to say, God, can we, will we do what you're asking us to do? It's not complicated. Can we believe in you, Jesus? Can we not just believe in you, but can we follow you? And will we orientate our lives around you? And can we actually worship you? Knowing that our lives are never perfect, but we're going to move to a future that will be perfect. And Jesus is saying, I have made a way possible. You need to believe in me. And you need to follow me. And I will impact your life for the better. Why don't we stand and, and let's indeed worship the Lord. Why don't we have the worship team come on up? And maybe while you're standing, just pat yourself on the back and give yourself a huge congratulations. You actually made it to church today and you did exactly what God is planning for you. And you're actually standing in a place where you can receive blessing and you actually can experience a change in your life and that God really, really knows where you're at. And as you worship God, God really, really, really can deal with the things that you're dealing with. And that's part of the, the step of faith. Holy Spirit, we just welcome your presence. We recognize that each one of us is different. And we recognize that you have all the solutions, all the power. And that, Lord, that you can give us hope. But Lord, as we fix our eyes on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, as we worship you, you fill us up, you direct us, you speak to us, you guide us, and you empower us. And Lord, so we expect nothing less as we worship you right now. In your name, Jesus. Amen.